Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Kei te whakarongo mai koe ki tō tātou auhurihuri, ki te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. You're with our changing world on RNZ National. And some of you may have been with our changing world from the very beginnings, just over a decade ago, just as I have. As I'm wrapping up my time with RNZ, I've been looking back through the stories I have covered over the years, and there are hundreds of them, and it seemed impossible to choose any favourites. So I simply went back to the show that went to air during this week, 10 years ago, on the 13th of July in 2006. This is a listening program only. We're probably um, the newest kids on the block with any technology at all. I mean, we're we're just emerging as a technological civilization. Um, we've had technology that's appropriate for a hundred years or so, and our galaxy's ten billion years old. So, any technology that we can detect out there, if it's detectable, it will be older than we are. It might not be there because it didn't last very long, uh, but we're certainly not going to be able to detect anyone younger than we are. There just isn't that much power being radiated or the environment isn't being modified in ways that we, with our 21st century technology, are capable of detecting. That was Jill Tata, the director of the City Institute in California who talked to me about her search for extraterrestrial life with the help of an array of radio telescopes. It seems strangely appropriate as one of the last stories I recorded for Our Changing World was also about radio astronomy and one of the largest science projects New Zealand is involved with, the Square Kilometre Array. What that allows you to do is to go back to areas of the sky again and again and survey things that are flashing on and off or changing or disappearing or appearing or exploding. And this allows us to study things like black holes, uh, exploding stars and things we haven't discovered yet. And that's the real key because the things that we don't know we're going to find yet, that's always what wins the Nobel Prizes. This is new science. We can't even predict. Are they tuning into particular frequencies? They are, yeah. We tune it just like a regular radio. You would tune into different radio stations. We tune our radio telescope into different frequencies or different cosmic radio stations to listen to different things. So we might tune to 1600 megahertz to look at hydroxyl molecules, special molecules that emit radio waves in space and study young forming stars, or we might tune it to 1420 megahertz, which is a cosmic station that tells us about the gas in galaxies. So there's lots of different radio stations that we can tune into that tells us about what's happening in the universe. The universe is certainly one of the frontiers of science, but for me personally, the deep ocean holds as much mystery. So here's a program about the Ring of Fire expedition during which marine scientists used a manned submersible to explore an arc of black smokers or undersea volcanoes in one of the world's strangest underwater landscapes, just off the New Zealand coast. It continues to be a privilege to go down to the bottom of the ocean. Okay, swimmer's clear, line's clear. Roger, understand, clear to dive. 
it is a bit of a fairyland. You're going almost every time you go down to some place nobody's ever seen before. It's cold, it's dark, there's so much pressure it would squeeze you to just a small little ball if you were out there. It's as close to what we can get to true exploration. It's one of the few places we haven't been to and we're just learning so much that it's, it's, it's a total rush in terms of the, uh, the excitement that a scientist can get in doing something new. Well, the Ring of Fire is uh, a wonderful description for the whole ring of volcanoes that surround, starting off from New Zealand, of course, actually starting off with Rapehu and going off to White Island and then through, through the Tonga and then circling around to uh, the New Hebrides Trench, uh, Vanuatu, through the Solomon, through the Marianas, through Japan, around California and then down South America. And of course it's characterized by active volcanoes and deep sea trenches. Here we go, here we go, here we got the motherland. Oh yeah, baby. There's bubbles coming everywhere. Bubbles, yeah. yeah. Bubbles all over right If you go to the ocean floor and are submersible, chances are that you'll be seeing terrain that nobody's ever seen before. It's a fantastic, absolutely fantastic experience. I've been working on these uh, submarine volcanoes for a long time and you can just see so much more detail being there and it's just like walking over a, a volcano. I had two dives and it's completely changed my perspective on how life functions at, at that sort of depth. Uh, previously we've, we've sampled some of these exact same seamounts we dived on with sleds, dredges, trawl nets and we've put our own cameras down but being there in a submersible it's just like walking a, across them and you get a totally different perspective. Things aren't jumbled up you see how things are, are naturally distributed. Basically changed my perception of, uh, of life in the deep sea. It's a, a bit of a moonscape actually. You go down and uh, you can only see 10 or 20 meters and occasionally things come up that are uh, completely surprising. Uh, generally large chimneys uh, that are uh, giving off hot fluids. Uh, sometimes they're clear, sometimes they're smoking white, sometimes they're smoking black. Uh, it's certainly spectacular. Every turn you make, you come across something new. We came across some vents that were um, boiling, so at uh, 160 metres deep. The fluids coming out were boiling, which is at about 205 degrees Celsius. That's something not many people get to see. We went up to 65 metres and saw um, Mau Mau and, and Shark, and it was very diverse. We groper following us around. The pictures of spaceships I've seen are much bigger than that submersible. <laughs> so if you get three people in this uh, very small sphere, uh, especially if they tend to be uh, large people like myself and Matt, uh, it's, it can be pretty uh, cramped after a few hours. You go down to up to 2,000 meters, so up to two kilometers, and uh, it takes a long time. We knew there were a number of volcanoes along this section of the arc. There's actually 2,400 kilometers of arc if you go all the way up. About half of that, about 1,300 kilometers, are in New Zealand waters. And we knew about the first 13 volcanoes, but we didn't know how many were actively venting water and whatever into the uh, oceans. So what we do is we have an underwater sensing and tow package that's got uh, sensors that can tell when we go through the plume smoke that they come out and uh, can also tell their temperature anomalies. So we have been essentially surveying 
each one of these volcanoes to find out which ones are active, and we found out more than half of those were active, which was a huge surprise. Between the universe and the oceans, my stories ranged from the Bose-Einstein condensate to gravitational waves, from whales to viruses, and from the newest chemical element to the geological signature of our impact on the planet. And there are always the people stories, such as this memorable interview with James Lovelock, an independent scientist perhaps best known for the Gaia hypothesis, which sees our planet as a self-regulating system. He featured in one of my Eureka programs almost 15 years ago. The Earth has a, a, a profoundly unstable atmosphere, wildly unstable. In fact, the odds against it being at its present composition by chance uh, are almost infinity against. Something must be regulating it, because that's the only possible answer you can give to a problem like that. It must be life that's doing the regulating, and that was it. It's not very tidy at the moment because I've been working in it. It's a good sign that if you come to a place that's exceedingly tidy, probably nothing's happening. Um, well, what I'm doing at the moment is ma ma making small pieces of equipment for measurements, and uh, I do it on a little lathe that I have there. Um, and you are actually making them pretty much from scratch still, are you? Oh, sure. Well, as you always have. As yeah. I always have. I only make the things that are totally unavailable. I don't go and make something that I could buy. That would be silly. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, there, there are, if you're an inventor, there's always things that haven't yet been made that you can make, and uh, that keeps me busy. Quite often, the problems I've worked on... There have been no apparatus in, in existence that would answer the problem I want, wanted to answer, so there was nothing to do but make it. Inside the home is one such piece of do-it-yourself history, a gas chromatograph which James Lovelock built for his voyage on the research vessel Shackleton in 1971. The ship sailed from Britain to Antarctica, and James Lovelock secured a berth for himself so he could measure the incidence of chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, across the Atlantic. He used the electron capture detector he'd invented several years earlier and showed for the first time that CFCs were distributed throughout the atmosphere. His subsequent paper in Nature kicked off the ozone debate. And the data also fed into his Gaia theory, by that stage still the Gaia hypothesis, and a long way from being accepted. It's always the way with large theories. Uh, Max Planck said of he would have to wait until his contemporaries had died before anybody would uh, uh, note what he was saying. It's a look at the Wagner with his plate tectonics. It's always the way with large theories, uh, and quite rightly so, because there's daft theories that turn up every few minutes, and they have to go through the hurdle. They have to go through the gauntlet of attack, uh, 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 and if they survive, eventually they, they make it. How did Gaia knock on your door? Did it just pop up in your mind as an idea, or did it actually come through the measurements, the pollution you were observing? Oh, no, it came through, through NASA. I remember it vividly. There was a kind of uh, eureka moment, and it was at the Jet Propulsion Labs in California in, I think it was September 1965, uh, uh, don't hold me on that date, but it was somewhere around about then. And uh, I was in an office in the Space Science Building uh, together with Carl Sagan, the astronomer, uh, 
Diane Hitchcock, who was a colleague of mine at that time, and uh, an astronomer called Lou Kaplan. And Lou had just come in with great sheets of paper, uh, the infrared analyses of the uh, atmospheres of Mars and Venus. And it turned out that both planets were mainly carbon dioxide, in fact, almost exclusively carbon dioxide and very little else. And uh, this meant that chemically they were very close to the equilibrium state. And according to a theory that I'd developed at JPL for life detection, they couldn't possibly have any life on them, which was not exactly a popular thing to say around at that time. But that's right. Exactly. And anyway, uh, we started chattering about it, and then suddenly it flashed into my mind, my God, the Earth has a a, a profoundly unstable atmosphere, wildly unstable. In fact, the odds against it being its present composition by chance or uh, almost infinity against uh, it, it, it's a remarkable thing and more than that it stays stable uh, for periods of perhaps hundreds of millions of years something must be regulating it because that's the only possible answer you can give to a problem like that so what's regulating it well since all the gases in the air have either been massively changed by life at the surface, like carbon dioxide and oxygen, or else are direct biological products, like methane and nitrous oxide and so on. It must be life that's doing the regulating. If you'd like to listen to the full story, you'll find it on the Our Changing World webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. As you can imagine, we eventually got talking about ozone depletion and climate change, and that's been an ongoing theme. Here are some of my earliest features about climate research in Antarctica. This underdressed fun run marks the halfway point for an ambitious international project, the Antarctic Drilling Project, or ANDRIL. Using sophisticated technology, ANDRIL has drilled through 80 metres of ice, dropped through nearly 900 metres of water, and then drilled another 700 metres into the seafloor. All that in an effort to retrieve information about past climates and the history of the Ross Ice Shelf. Tim Nash from Victoria University's Antarctic Research Centre and Ross Powell, a geologist at Northern Illinois University, are the chief scientists of the project. We're drilling here on the Ross Ice Shelf in this particular location because it sits in a deep water basin and this basin has been formed around the edge of Ross Island. Ross Island has been is a volcano, Mount Erebus, we we'll all be familiar with, has been uh, accumulating, if you like, as a volcanic pile over the last five million years. And during that time, the weight of the rocks erupted from the Erebus volcano have pushed the crust down. So around the 
island itself is what we call a moat basin, flexural moat basin. And that, and that basin, we believe, over the last five million years has been deep enough to accumulate or capture, if you like, sediments that have been uh, transported or uh, represent the advance and retreat of the Ross Ice Shelf and the Ross Ice Sheet. So we think this is a pretty unique location for being able to capture a fairly detailed record of the Antarctic ice sheet history for that time period. So far we've been uh, very lucky in the record that we've uh, recovered. Uh, it's the first ever sort of record for this time period in the Antarctic and it's just exceptional. It really does give us a record of what we wanted and that is an indication that the West Antarctic Ice Sheet and the Ross Ice Shelf have been moving back and forward in time and we hope we can get some uh, inferences about uh, the climate of the past and what has been driving that ice sheet back and forward uh, through the past uh, five to ten million years. So we're here in the National Ice Core Research Facility at GNS Science in Loa Hut, which is a shared facility between GNS and Victoria University, but also many other organizations such as NEMA and International Partners. Um, this is the place where we bring all our Antarctic and also New Zealand ice cores back to um, process the cores and then forward our samples to various labs to measure those samples. So I'd imagine you have to keep those cores as they would be in their natural environment? Yeah, that's correct. They're, they're very cosy, minus 35 degrees, and um, as we're going in there now, it's better if we put a few layers on as well. So I've got a couple of jackets here for you and gloves. Great. Let's do that. So these are, this is equipment that we also use in Antarctica, and um, obviously, you know, with these temperatures here at minus 35, it's just a perfect, perfect gear to use. So if you spend the whole day in there... I guess you wouldn't be at minus 35 for a whole day. That's just where the cores are. Your working area must be a little warmer than that. We have three different types of freezers. So we have one that we call our warm working freezer, and that's at minus 20. And that's a temperature that's relatively comfortable when you're fully dressed up. You still get, you know, cold nose and cold hands and that kind of thing. But with um, the, all the layering of clothes that we have here, um, other than that, you're actually quite comfortable. But every so often we do have to spend quite significant time in the minus 35 freezers as well, and you will feel as we go in there that you can sense your nostrils freezing up a bit and your eyelashes start to glue together from the ice build up, and, and that's certainly quite a, quite a different level yet again. But if you move around and you work so that you produce a little bit of body heat, um, you're actually still quite comfortable as well. Just standing around is difficult. I think I'd like a pair of gloves so I can keep holding those microphones. That just <laughs> yeah. sounds slightly uncomfortable without gloves. Well, I just got the perfect mittens for you here. They're called nose wipers. Would you like one of those? Yes, please. <laughs> perfect. So now we're going into the first freezer. This is what we call the anteroom. And here it's only minus five. And this pre-cools and dries all the air that goes into the colder freezer. So now we go into the minus 20 freezer. So this is like a fridge, really? This is like the warm area to warm up. <laughs> wow, so this is minus 20. This is where you can actually spend the whole day working? You can, yeah. I mean, it depends a little bit what you had for breakfast. You know, if you have a good br cooked breakfast, it's actually quite comfortable here after a while when you're bundled up and you move around and you work, then that temperature feels quite good. So do you find you need more calories working here? It's than a you fantastic excuse oh, to have right, more okay. calories. <laughs> <laughs> well, because it would be true on ice. In Antarctica, it would be true that you can easily eat a lot more calories without putting on weight just by being in the cold. That's very true, and it's, it's one of those challenges, actually. If you do spend a lot of time on the ice out in the field in tents, you 
you have to make sure that you're not losing too much weight. Normally, most people do lose some weight while being on the, in the field, and so you normally make make up for that by eating as much chocolate as you can and some rather hefty meals for lunch and dinners. Let's, um, I'm already getting cold feet. Let's get into the next even colder room uh, <laughs> so we can see the cause. Right, so here. Wow. Your eyelashes are frosting up. I can see it. <laughs> Where to from here? How about a complete change of topic? You can't have a science program without dinosaurs. And one of my regrets has always been that I've never managed to go dinosaur fossil hunting with Joan Whiffen, New Zealand's very own dinosaur discoverer. But here I got a chance to at least visit her stomping ground. Yeah, Roger. Yeah, I'll just duck over now. So we're heading back out of the Mongatanafa native forest into the Mongatanafa pine forest and then we're going west into the country where Joan Whiffen and crew spent 15 years finding all of their wonderful fossils. We're in the southern part of the Mongatanafa native forest up a place called Ernie's Creek and we're walking up a, a wee branch of it, the true left hand fork of Ernie's Creek in an area where we found a couple of fossils just recently um, and they're the first ones to be found in this locality. So you've been up and down this creek before to look for things? I've only been in part of it, so today we're actually going to go into some new country and we may or may not find something. What have you found before? I'm not sure. I don't have that specialised knowledge, but the people from GNS say that one of the fossils is possibly a femur bone from a mosasaur, a great big reptilian marine animal that um, was something like a giant crocodile and the other bit that we found recently has been identified just last night in, as an elasmosaur vertebrae. So this is the compression of water. And this is the sort of thing that Joan Wiffen found most of her material in. In places you can still see where they were working, you know, they were really keen. They had a big rock cutting saw and they would put a cut into the rock and then use wedges to split the rocks open. There's great big concretional boulders and they're solid, you know, your steel hammer just bounces off them. But then there's a bit of bone just next to you in the other block. John. This bit here? Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I think that's bone. So often with the bone we get little accumulations of shark's teeth and that could easily be that sort mm. of... Mm. Could be, yeah. Or, or fish bones, that fish could bones, be a fish yeah. vertebrae. Yeah. You can actually still see the grain in this, I think, eh? Yeah, you can see something along that face, yeah, so... Big, big paws of the reptilian bones. So. I think we've got a bit of bone here. Right, we'll come down and have a look. Oh, yeah. That's clear, isn't it? Yeah, that's what's wetting it didn't help, but... Um, there's no doubt with this one, that's definitely no, bone, that's, isn't it? That's definitely a piece of bone. And that, we could get that off actually, I've got a chisel, we could remove that lump probably. It looks like a piece of vertebrae, eh? Like it's, yeah. there's a flat surface here. Oh, it's all this um, uh, moss that's, that's on it and uh, it kind of obscures what you're trying to look for. And of course, back in the lab, we can just throw a bit of peroxide on it and it's gone in no time. But. Uh, Mind you, a bit of sand and a elbow grease does a trick or two. Clean it up. Yeah. 
So there's a, a, a large boulder in the stream here. It's too big for us to turn over. It's got one definite bone in it that we can see. But the rock has a natural sort of split going through the middle. So we're going to try and split the whole rock along that with a chisel, hammer and chisel, and see if we can, can expose some more of the rock to see if there's more bones inside. And of course you can't have a science show without the smallest of things on the fringe of life, like these ninja viruses that infect bacteria, and could be useful as we look for alternatives to antibiotics. I mean, one of the things that I'm really hoping and one of the things that really drove us to start exploring this in a teaching setting is that as people learn more about viruses, people will be more willing to consider these as a real tool in our arsenal. Um, and as we're running out of potential in terms of antibiotics, we've basically reached peak antibiotics, um, we need to start thinking about creative ways of killing the bacteria that are harming us without killing the bacteria that are not harming us. Most of the bacteria in our environment are beneficial, um, and it's only a few bacteria that we really want to be able to destroy. And by using viruses that are already evolved to specifically target those bacteria, maybe this is a great way of thinking about um, therapy and antimicrobials in the future instead of trying to find more and more chemicals to do that job for us. And finally, here's a story that'll stay with me. We're standing at the final resting place of the woman who's come to be known as Auntie. She was one of the first um, people that were found here by Jim Isles. She's been um, reburied here. Her, her head in particular is at the spot where there's a large stone and there's a whale vertebra marking the spot as well. I haven't given you the names of most of the people you've heard, simply because I don't want to single anybody out. The science community as a whole has been a fantastic bunch of people to work with, as have my colleagues here at RNZ and you, our audience. Big thanks for listening tonight and any other night that you've tuned in to join us. But it's time to go. Of course, there's the webpage if you'd like to listen to any stories again. rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World.